You're listening to the sermon podcast by Southside Baptist Church in Florence, South Carolina. We exist to know God and to make Jesus known. For more up-to-date information, check us out at southsidenow.church. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel, to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of the prophecy and hear the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Christ, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father in heaven, as we come before you today, 
Father, we marvel at who you are, giving you thanks, giving you praise, giving you glory and honor. Father, thanking you, Father, that you have brought us together as the church, as your people, in worship of you. And Father, knowing that we are gathered, Father, as the church because of Christ Jesus and the beautiful work that he has done. And Father, knowing and believing that he is seated at your right hand on our behalf as our great high priest, Father, so that we may come before your throne and worship. And Father, hearing your truth today to be reminded of who our Jesus is and Father, that he is coming again. To rule and reign with all authority and all power. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. The author and the finisher of our faith. And so Father, today we come before you in the name and in the power of Jesus. The very one, Father, who holds these seven churches in the palm of his hand. Father, the very one who holds the seven angels of these churches in the palm of his hand. The very one, Father, who gave himself perfectly and sacrificially for us. Father, would you lead and guide us? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I am so excited for us to begin this series, Seven Letters, Anciently Modern Truths for the Church. And we're going to be spending over the next seven weeks Leading up to Easter, studying the seven letters written by Jesus to the churches there in Asia. And so today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin by looking at Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. But I want to go ahead and say this right now. As we look toward Easter, I want to go ahead and, and, and encourage you even now to begin inviting Folks, to be here for that time. Any Sunday is a great Sunday, but particularly on Easter, we know that people are more inclined to maybe want to come to church that day. And so I would encourage you now to begin praying, to begin thinking about who God would lead you to invite to church on Easter. And I'm just really excited for how God is working, talking with folks this morning here who are inviting their neighbors to come to church. Nothing makes me more excited because just as I promised you a few weeks ago, if you invite them, we will share the gospel with them. And so I'm thankful you're here today. So very thankful you're here today. And I'm really excited for us as we join in this study together. And so I want to read the words there of Jesus to the church in Ephesus, beginning in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, so very excited for us to begin here over the next seven weeks. And as I was praying about where God would lead us as a church together next to study the word of God to, together, I begin to sense God leading us together to this place. And my desire for us as a church, as God's church, is to be as faithful and as obedient as we can to our holy God in heaven. That's my greatest desire for us as a church, that we would be as faithful and as obedient as we can be to our holy God in heaven. I desire nothing more than for us as God's church to make his his name great in the community of Florence, South Carolina, and to the ends of the earth. And I pray, I pray we'll continually fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, and we will make disciples to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is my prayer. This is my desire for us as a church day in, day out. And I believe with everything I have, This is exactly, too, what the seven churches in Revelation that we're going to study desired as well. But we see immediately this morning, as Jesus is speaking to Ephesus, as he is giving them this letter within a fallen world, that it is easy for the church, no matter how well-intentioned she might be, to fall away from being faithfully obedient to the holy triune God of the universe. The very one who has all authority and power over his church. And the moment, the moment we fall prey to no longer being obedient to the very one who has called us to be a part of his church, in that moment, we find ourselves in a very, very dangerous situation. See, the church in Ephesus was planted approximately AD, uh, 52 AD. And this letter was written to the church in Ephesus at approximately 96 AD. And if we go and read Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, it was written approximately 62 AD. And so from 52 AD to the origin of the church to 62 AD, when we read Paul's letter to the church there in Ephesus, what we see is a, is a good church. Paul doesn't have much issue 
with the church at Ephesus. Much of what he is, is, is writing to them in respect to that type of stuff is more cautionary, more guarding against these types of ideas, keeping the world outside of the church. And so within those first 10 years, things were going pretty well. But then all of a sudden, as we read Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, some 30 years later, we begin to understand that something differently is occurring among the people of Ephesus. There has been a progression. There's been a change that has taken place within the church. And so the very fact that Jesus is unveiling this problem is the very understanding for us to know that the church at Ephesus had no idea that this was a problem that was occurring around them. As Jesus was speaking these words to them, they were in belief that they were doing everything correctly. They had it all right. They were clinging to and protecting the truth. However, Jesus makes it very clear that they had slipped into a pit of disobedience toward God, losing their first love. Day after day over time, a new reality had begun to manifest itself among the church in Ephesus. Edmund Burke was a, a British statement and a philosopher, and he said this, Very seldom does a man take one giant step from a life of virtue and goodness into a life of vice and corruption. Usually he begins his journey into evil by taking little steps into the shaded areas, areas tinted and colored just a bit, almost unnoticed by those around him. So Burke is describing for us what I like to call immoral baby steps. Immoral baby steps. And the Ephesians had been taking baby steps away from God. They had been following their own heart's desires. They had been seeking their own way in all things, honoring themselves in the name of religion. And they had slowly distanced themselves from their glorious relationship with the holy God of the universe. And the effect that these baby steps away from God were having led to a devastating announcement from Jesus himself. And see, if we're not careful, we too are prone to baby steps of wandering. And those baby steps, if they occur over five years, over 10 years, over 20 years, over 30 years, all of a sudden, after some time, we begin to understand that we are surprisingly far distance away from God. And so, small compromises. I'm going to say that again. Small compromises upon the good teachings of Jesus in our lives slowly turn into miles of sinful separation between us and the holy God of 
the universe. Vance Havner, in his wisdom and in his glorious preaching, said, the devil is not fighting religion. He's too smart for that. He is producing a counterfeit Christianity so much like the real one that good Christians are afraid to speak against it. See, the church at Ephesus, they were experiencing something that was counterfeit. They were experiencing something that wasn't true. Because they had lost their first love that God had instilled in them. See, the Ephesians, they looked like a good church. They loved and protected truth at all costs. They were doctrinally sound. The preaching was good and rich. They weren't embracing the world. In fact, Jesus commended them for hating the Nicolaitans just as Jesus himself had hated the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about these people other than their names literally translates to conquer the people. And so the Nicolaitans, they had an agenda. And it seems that their ideas, their false teachings were built upon this idea of antinomianism, which literally means that grace abounds and you can do whatever you want to do with your physical self. And so they believed that there was no judgment for moral wrongdoing. And so this is the way the world was living around the church at Ephesus. Have at it. Do whatever feels good for you. Sounds a little familiar, right? Nothing new under the sun. And so Paul, however, was explicit in his epistles that grace abounding does not mean that a person should choose for sin to abound. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is an opportunity to live in obedience to the God of the universe. And so the Nicolaitans, they didn't understand this. They wanted to serve themselves. And the church at Ephesus had done a really good job of pointing this out. And maintaining a guardian or a, 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 a gate to the church to keep these ideas out of the church. And so they were breaching into the minds and the hearts of people, but the church at Ephesus, they were standing firm upon the truth of God. They resisted these ideas and these teachings. And so, what in the world was Ephesus doing? that caused Jesus to be so upset with them that he said, if you don't get some things figured out, you will no longer exist as a church anymore. And he makes it very clear. He says, I have this against you that you abandoned the love you had at first. And so we see this theologically rich and robust church but to use the words of Craig Blomberg from um, his book, Pentecost to Patmos, he said this of Ephesus. He said, they remained orthodox despite the intrusion of heretics. They had won the theological war, but lost the battles of behavior and spirit. They clung to truth better than they loved God or others. 
See, they loved truth more than they loved God or they loved others. There was nothing heinous occurring in the church of Ephesus. There was no lying. There was no slander. There was no gossip. There was no sexual immorality. There were no other impurities that are being pointed out here. No stealing, no arguing, no corruption. There was none of that. The problem at Ephesus was that they loved the truth more than the very one who was and is the truth. And they made that truth like a shrine instead of using it as a compass and a beacon to guard and to guide their lives. So their love for God and people had diminished. And Jesus said, even though you appear to be a great church, even though you seemingly have it all figured out, even though people look to you for answers of truth and help and how to deal with the issues of the culture today, even though your worship seems so rich and pure, he promised them if there was not a change, that he was going to snuff their lamp out. And the church at Ephesus would no longer be. And so this should cause us as God's church to pause this morning with great caution. This church was theologically astute. They knew all the answers. They fooled themselves into believing that they had it all figured out. And in the process, everything looked like the perfect church. And yet their hearts were far away from God. And through their behavior... And Jesus' discipline, we learn something eternally valuable. Truth without love is dishonoring to God. Truth without love is dishonoring to God. See, there is no truth without love and there is no love without truth. The two must exist in tandem. Love does not exist apart from God because God is love. And truth cannot exist apart from love because we have been revealed truth by our God in heaven who is truth because he loves us. And so because of this, we must love the one who gives us truth. And we must love those with whom we are sharing truth. See, truth became the golden calf to the church at Ephesus. They believed that truth was the end goal instead of understanding that truth and love were like a revolving door, that they reciprocated each other. Love leads to truth and truth leads to love. In love, we have been given truth. Truth teaches us to love. Love calls us to know and love others in truth, and by doing so, we are loving our God in heaven because we are obeying his truth. And when we obey our God in heaven and obey his truth, it starts all over again. See, they can't exist separately. The Ephesians lost sight 
of this God-given truth in their life. They were solely focused upon themselves and being right, and they had forgotten God's word to them. I, rem I reminded you that Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. Hear what he says in chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all imp uh, impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because there of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all good and is right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And so we, we read these words from Paul almost 30 years prior. And it's really easy to think, man, Ephesus has done all of this. Right? This is what Jesus was commending them for. They have kept the world out of the church. They have clung firmly to the truth of God. They have shined the light of Jesus in that sense of loving the truth. But they forgot the first two verses that Paul wrote to them in chapter 5, which said this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so they had unhitched their love from truth. All the things that God had called them to do, he had called them to do in the name of Jesus through his love, through his power and his sacrifice. And so what we begin to understand is the motive for the church at Ephesus was not of God. Their motive in loving truth was simply for religious platitudes. They, they wanted pats on the back. They wanted the, the attaboys. They wanted the world to know and to look at them and to marvel at their ability to be able to, to reason and to think and to, to push back against the mystical, occultic ideas that existed within their communities. They wanted everyone to, to marvel at how well they knew Scripture and how attuned with God they really were. And they had forgotten entirely God's call and mission in their lives to love him and to love those around them and to make disciples in the name of Jesus. They were clinging to the truth of God as if it were their treasure and they did not want anyone else to know or experience their treasure. And so let us not be arrogant today. Let us, let us not believe that there is no way 
that we here at Southside can't become an Ephesus. I'll give you an example. This week, Lee and I, along with many others from our community, attended the Choice to Make Gala. And the Choice to Make, many of you, I hope, know, is a crisis pregnancy, a crisis pregnancy center within our community that fights tirelessly to protect and help unborn and born children, mothers and fathers, to make God-honoring choices in their lives and to preserve life and to share the hope of the gospel with these families. And in a situation such as abortion, it is so easy for us as the church, as people of God, to participate in spiritual arrogance. Because we believe the Bible teaches that conception begins at the moment or that life begins at the moment the conception takes place within the womb of the mother. And so therefore, there is no moment in time that is permittable under God's good design and under God's authority to abort a pregnancy. And if abortion occurs, we believe, based upon the teaching of God, that that child has been murdered. This is the truth. We must believe it and we must cling to it. However, how we communicate this truth, how we deal with a person who is grieving the decision of an abortion in their lives with shame and guilt, how we deal with a dad who is trying to convince a mother that they don't have the funds to raise a child, how we deal with a person who believes that abortion is simply a women's health issue or any other decision that falls under this ethical dilemma for so very many must be given by us as a gift that is wrapped in, or gift of truth that is wrapped in love. And so we, we have to understand as the people of God that everyone that we encounter has a story, has a history. Everyone that we encounter is made in the image of God, bearing flesh, an eternal soul. And us screaming at people and trying to hit them over and over and over again without, with truth, with no love, God says is ineffective. He says we have to love people. We have to understand that the people we encounter who may be dealing with the sin that we find to be so heinous might also we understand that we too have heinous sins in our lives? Would we also understand that there's a bloody stained cross and an empty tomb that says that Christ died for that person just as he died for me? And in those moments, we begin to understand that truth is absolutely valuable, but Jesus died for us in love, and so we have to serve truth in love. And Ephesus had lost sight of this understanding. And we too, as the people of God, if we're not careful here at Southside, if we do not protect ourselves, we too can fall into this fact that truth without love is dishonoring to God. 
But thanks be to God, Jesus is full of grace. He is full of mercy. And he tells them, there's a way to fix this. There's a way to overcome this. He says, truth without love is dishonoring to God. However, it is overcome only through remembrance, repentance, and revitalization. Jesus says it can be overcome if we remember, if we repent, and if we revitalize. And so I believe that these are very clear instructions for us today from Jesus. And this is a prescription to overcome the fallenness of our hearts that we are so tempted to fall within. However, along with it being a prescription of, of, of the opportunity to fix something, I also believe that it is a prescription for us to prevent. For us as a church to prevent ourselves from falling into the same snare that Ephesus had fallen within. To forget our first love. And so we overcome by remembering. We prevent by remembering. Jesus is calling Ephesus to remember who their God is, the one from whom they have fallen. And if we look in chapter one, hear the words that, that Joshua read for us this morning, we see exactly who our God is. It says he's the one who is and who was and who is to come and the seven spirits who are before his throne and Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. And so we see the triune nature of our God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he continues by saying he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is the Alpha and Omega, the Almighty. He is the very one who holds all the churches and all the angels in his hand. This is who our Jesus is. And when we remember who he is, remembering that he has called us into relationship with himself, remembering that he has reconciled us unto himself from the sins of this following world, remembering that he has delivered us from the pits of hell, placed our feet on the solid foundation of truth and eternal life. And when we remember that he has called us into a mission for his glory and for the sake of others. It's in those moments that we are reminded of what our first love is. And he is Jesus. And so we, church, let us be reminded today that Jesus is our love. Jesus is our treasure he is our good gift of salvation and hope. He's the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who has brought us into fellowship with the God of the universe. And so as the church, we are able to love the truth. We are able to do ministry we are able to gather corporately in worship and to worship in our homes. We're able to do the things that God has called us to do. Why? First and foremost, because of Jesus. 
Nothing. Nothing exists apart from Jesus. So we're called to remember. We should remember every single day. Be intentional. Every day. When we put our feet on the ground, I pray that the Holy Spirit will spur our hearts to say, remember. So that every other aspect of our life flows out of that remembrance of who Jesus is. And so when we remember these truths, we were reminded of how loved we are and how much we too should give this type of love to our God and to others in truth. And then we're, we're led to repent. Ephesus was called to repent. And so when we when we remember consistently of who our God is and what he has done in our lives, we begin to glaringly see our imperfections. When we, when we worship and honor and study the holy God of the universe, we begin to understand how imperfect we really are. We begin to see the ways in which we are failing God. And in this moment, we have two choices. The first choice is that we can live in shame and despair. The second choice, I believe, is much better. We can know and believe that there is that bloody stained cross and empty tomb that tells us that these sins too have been forgiven. When Christ died on that cross, when Christ endured the just penalty, the wrath of God for our sins, he died for the sins that would happen even now and tomorrow and the next day. And so we can go before him in repentance, understanding that we have been forgiven. And what we understand, though, is we're not like the Nicolaitans. It's not like every day going, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and we keep doing the things that we know are dishonoring of God. No, we understand that grace is not a license to sin, but grace is a, an opportunity to obey our God in heaven. And so when we repent, we understand that something different happens. It's not just an I am sorry type of moment, but it's an I am sorry with, an, with a directional change that occurs in our lives. We were headed this way towards the world and God showed us in his glory and splendor and grace that this was no good for our lives. And through our repentance, we take our hands off and we turn and we go back toward God. This is what it means to repent. And I've been so guilty in my life, I'm sure you've been so guilty in your life to use that word repentance so flippantly when you're still clinging to the things that have a hold on you, when reality is you're just falsely saying, I'm sorry. And then the next day, you're doing it all over again. See, Jesus wants us to truly change and be changed. And what we understand is we can't do that in our own power. We need the power of God to change us. So in our prayers of repentance, we need to ask God earnestly, God, would you change my heart? Would you change my mind to hate these things that are not of you and to love the things that are of you? And so we must repent, confess our sins before God, make that 180 degree change, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
And finally, he says, we must revitalize. We look there, he uses that word do. Do the things that you did at first. Do the works you did at first. And so Jesus is calling the church at Ephesus. He's calling the church at Southside Baptist today to keep our hand to the plow. He is reminding this church of the letter that Paul wrote to them, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why were we created? He says right here, for good works. This is our purpose. To worship our God in heaven and to live our lives obediently for him, doing the will and the work that he has prepared for us. And Ephesus was missing her purpose as the church because she was no longer doing the good works that God had prepared for her. And so we as the church this morning must take heed. See, the church is not a place for us to come on Sunday only to check a box off on our lives to then come back next Sunday never having thought about the church at all or our walk with God. The church is not a place for us to, to love truth only and to participate in Bible studies only to walk out of the doors of the church never to share Jesus with anyone with whom God places in our pathways. The church is not a social club that is run by popularity contests and man-made ideas. The church is the living, breathing body of Christ. And we who are united by Christ Jesus into this body, we have a purpose to live out the good works put before us by our God in heaven with the end goal of glorifying our God in all things by making disciples of all nations. This is who we are called to be. We are called to do the work of God. And I'm going to say this, not some of us, all of us. Every single one of us have a mission implanted in us by God. And so as we close this morning, in this moment, we must Ask ourselves, what am I doing? What am I doing to fulfill this very call from God in my life at Southside Baptist Church? We must examine our own hearts this morning. See, I don't know what's in your heart. You don't know what's in my heart. But the God of heaven, he does. And this morning, we need to seek him and to ask him by the power of his Holy Spirit to help us navigate our hearts, to help us understand our hearts, and to truly ask the question this morning, have I lost my first love? Who or what do I love? Am I committed to the call to love God and to love others for the sake of sharing truth in love? 
Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Jesus says to those who persevere in his power, he will grant to eat from the tree of life. This is a promise of a future when the tree of life will again be accessible in the new Jerusalem. After God in his sovereignty removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, knowing that if they ate of that tree of life in the state of the sinful nature that they were in, it would be horrific and tragic. And so God in his sovereignty removed them away from this tree. But God in his sovereignty and grace and mercy and power is going to allow accessibility back to this tree. And he says that we, as his people, we will get to partake of the tree of life if we live by his grace and power and experience the victory that he has for us. So he was calling us to be faithful, to be faithful to the end. Listen. I am so thankful for the excitement that we've experienced over the last six to seven weeks. But can I tell you this morning that my greatest prayer for us as the people of God is that we would love Jesus fiercely and that we would be faithful to the end. This is what excites me. This is what fires me up. To know that we get to do life together and be the church together. To encourage one another. To build each other up. To walk in the truth together. And to love the way that Christ has called us to love. And if we are faithful, then I can certainly tell you today that he will be faithful. And so my prayer for us together this morning as the church is that we'll seek our own hearts. And that we'll all find ourselves together, collectively, united in Christ Jesus with our first love being at the focus of all things. The first love being Jesus. Listen, there may be someone in here this morning that your love and your affections have never truly turned toward Jesus. You've never truly submitted your life to Christ. But you know that today, you could do that right now in this moment. Give yourself fully to Jesus. Quit clinging to the things of this world. To quit clinging to the things that the world promises to be hopeful to be satisfactory, and yet those things fail over and over and over again. If I could tell you one thing today, Jesus will never fail you. And he will love you tirelessly and endlessly and perfectly. And because of his perfect love, he has brought you into a fellowship where you too will be loved by the people of God. And so we're getting ready to sing the heart of worship. Would we let God be the heart of our worship?
The altar is open today. Joshua and I will be down front. If you want to talk about salvation, if you want to pray together, however God is leading you in this moment, would you pray to him? Would you go to him and allow him to work in his power and in his grace? Father, we love you.